hey, everyone, as we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part to save democracy and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by John Della Volpe, Director of Polling at the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics, where he's led the Institute's polling initiatives on understanding American youth since the year 2000. The Washington Post has referred to him as one of the world's leading authorities on global sentiment, opinion, and influence, especially among youth and in the age of digital and social media. John appears regularly on MSNBC's Morning Joe, and his research is often sourced by national media outlets in the United States and abroad, including The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. He is also the founder and CEO of SocialSphere, a public opinion research firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. John recently released his new book, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America, which is available wherever fine books are sold. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. All right. So, John, let me just start. Like every other Gen Xer, now firmly entrenched in middle age, I see Gen Z and I sort of go, like sort of like Napoleon Dynamite, right? (laughs) So before we even get into the book, give us a sense of who is Gen Z today? Well, you're in good company. I'm a Gen Xer. I like to think I've kind of embedded myself in this generation, 21 years working on a college campus, studying them through polling and focus groups, coaching, having, you know, three of my own. It's one of the most fascinating generations alive today. We're talking about 70 million young people, roughly between the ages of 11, 12 and 25 or 26 years old. I'm not the kind of person who's going to say you need to be born on this day or that date. You know, generations choose you, you know, in terms of the collective experience that someone has growing up. But it's the most educated, most diverse generation we've ever had. And I make the case in the book that I think it's the first generation at least 70 or 80 years who has seen more trauma and more angst than any generation in at least 70, 75 years or so. If we walk back and you think about this, they're born around 9-11. And from that moment forward, there was just like this lack of security and losing the sense of innocence so, so quickly through red alert shooter drills, through the financial crisis, global warming, opioids, all this before Trump comes onto the scene and creates a whiplash effect. And they had so many of these negative experiences without ever seeing like we do or remembering the possibility of America when we can all come together and do big things. As I've thought about it, especially younger Americans. I thought about it in the context of my grandparents. My grandmother was born in a house in upstate New York without running water or electricity. You know, she and her brothers walked to a one-room schoolhouse uphill in the snow both ways, the whole ballgame, you know, milking the cow, eggs. That's their childhood. And then they get into the Great Depression. That's when they're getting married. And then they have World War II, where both my grandfathers, like, disappeared for four years. And then they come back and the world has changed, but in the span of 20 years. And so 
are the Gen Zers sort of the proto greatest generation of the 21st century? I think they have the ability to. I absolutely think they could be the next greatest generation, without question. And they're also the first fully sort of digital generation, right? Yeah, and that's both been positive, I think, right, for them to kind of connect with other like-minded individuals and to kind of keep abreast of what's happening, not just in their communities, but around the world, and find some safety and some comfort and some community there. But also, as we know, especially now, the role of social media, the role the internet has also played a very pervasive role in driving something that is a common thread through all this book of depression, anxiety, stress, angst, et cetera, not just turbocharging negative feelings around personal relationships, stress at school, et cetera, but also, I think, the way in which our politics is practiced and understood. You know, just to give you a sense that like, there is a strong correlation between the number of news alerts that someone gets on their phone or times they check social media and the level of anxiety. And a lot of those news alerts are coming from the dysfunction in our democracy today. Let me ask you this. I mean, when we were growing up, right, three, four channels, then cable came in, there certainly was no internet. And you saw your friends at school and after school, but then you went home and there was that time to, it was probably unconscious, but you could process that information, right? There were times when you didn't see your friends, things happened that you had to share the next morning on the walk to school. We walked to school, John, and like by ourselves starting in third grade. But to your point about the news alerts and social media, is there ever a time when their brains are quiet such that they can have some sort of ability to recharge? Less and less. I remember, you know, walking in after coming home from a trip to the West Coast when my daughter was in high school. It was almost the middle of the night. And her light was on. I said, what's the matter? She goes, I'm studying for my test. It's in the morning. You know, I said, you're going to get probably an A plus or an A, maybe an A minus. Like, you know it. Let's go to sleep, right? But there's just always this anxiety around fear of the other or the kind of social pressures that everyone has. Everyone has had from the beginning of time. But it's just so exacerbated by the role of media and social media. And what I'm finding Frankly, just the last year or so, as I have informal and more you know, formal conversations through qualitative research with younger people, is that they're choosing to tell me that one way they're trying to actively manage your mental health is to turn away, right? Is to check their news, their phone, those things less often. But yeah, I don't think they or any of us can really escape the kind of information and the incoming pressures from the world. I was doing a thing years ago and I thought about someone reading a newspaper, either over their breakfast table, maybe on the train to work. Then they put the newspaper down and they went to work. You could process that information. There was time, right? You sort of marinated on the information, whether you were conscious of it or not. Now it's like, you know, our attention span, not only for the Gen Zers, but for all of us is so short is that But by the time you're even sort of thinking about a particular thing that's just happened, and there's always a new thing happening, there's the next new thing happening. So you haven't even had a chance to really consider different angles of that. So it's like, okay, something comes at you, you make these snap decisions in your head and you move on. And I guess for Gen Zers, is it even harder because those snap decisions become ingrained in you? And then if you have to revisit that, is it that much more difficult for them to reconsider something because they're being asked to make so many decisions, conscious and otherwise, in a daily basis? I find it's challenging for them to put all of these pieces into the proper context, you know, in terms of what information is more or less important, more or less kind of trusted than other information. That's very hard. The other thing that is important of this conversation, Reed, is that I'm not a scientist, 
But what I've read in preparation for this book is that the average brain isn't fully mature until the age of 25. So we had these experiences growing up where we could find those opportunities to think creatively, to wind down, and to kind of find our own space, which is something that this generation has never had the opportunity to do that. So I think what we're finding is that this generation's brains are literally wired differently than ours. Do you think they're also afraid of that time away because it's so unusual for them? One of the real sparks to write this book is conversations like this I started having accidentally, frankly, with younger people. You know, Before I could have a focus group on education or crime policy or any sort of issue, I'd ask, how are things going? You know, and I'd start to hear these stories of angst and depression and just the connection that younger people were searching for, you know, uh, the human connection. I think there's a story of a, of a young woman who I met in Atlanta who she had to drop out of school. Her parents thought she was headed to Harvard because she was so intelligent and seemed to have so many gifts. But by the time other kids got to caught up with her, it created a bunch of angst and depression. And it took her years to find, ended up being a homeroom teacher in some school that could kind of make that human connection and help her put things into context for them. So I do think it's very challenging for younger people to make sense of their own social life. Again, that's always been challenging. The accelerant of social media and the immediacy of that makes it even more of a challenge. But this other challenge around the effect our politics is having, I think is relatively new. And those two things were happening well before COVID. And now we have got COVID, you know, I'm in Boston and we move around pretty much doing whatever we want to do. We'll wear a mask, you know, in certain restaurants or stores, et cetera. But it doesn't mean that our kids still aren't locked up in some way. So let me ask you this, because amongst this generation, if you read George Packer's latest book, he talks about the meritocracy, especially amongst upper income, middle-aged, mostly white, successful people, that their kids have to be part of the system, that they will do whatever is necessary to ensure that their kids continue on that train track, for lack of a better metaphor. But we'll also ensure that if they have to block the train track for somebody else, that that's what they'll do. And so if you want your kid to go to Harvard, right, and your kid's like, but I want to be a park ranger, like, how does that square now? You know, there was a documentary several years old now where it was the woman who at the time was director of admissions at Berkeley. And she said, you'd be amazed at how many freshmen we have to remediate in math and English because they haven't absorbed anything. They've just been working their you know what's off to get here. And now that they're here, they're incapable of doing the work. And so what kind of pressure does that put on? Because there's obviously the people on the higher economic echelon, but that also leaves out many, many people who do not exist in a world where college is a foregone conclusion. Of which about half of the generation fits into that category. I'm proud of what I've been hearing from Gen Z in terms of them raising the questions, raising the issues of their own mental health unprompted in almost every conversation I have with them. I don't know whether they are suffering more at this age from mental health challenges, anxiety, stress, hopelessness, depression, et cetera, than millennials did just a few years ago. But I, I certainly know they're more forward in terms of offering that up. I also think when I ask younger people, as well as parents now, you know, what's success look like in an education environment, in a K-12 education environment, I'm hearing more than I ever have about creating, you know, well-balanced, healthy, curious 
individuals. I think those kinds of qualities lead to different kinds of outcomes. And for that young male or female who's not interested in traditional education or for your college, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're more open and welcoming to those kinds of decisions. And that's the one thing that has concerned me vis-a-vis education, and I guess a lot of this generation in the political discourse, is that we seem to have over-rotated pretty significantly from 30 or 40 or 50 years ago of where like it was a perfectly acceptable thing to learn a trade. The guy with the nicest house in my neighborhood is the town electrician. Maybe he went to college. I don't know. The difference is, is he's got like 15 trucks running around town, right? That's a successful business. And, you know, I assume his family are doing well. Maybe his kids will go to college. Maybe they'll go into the family business. But it seems that we're undervaluing the fact that, like, there is a lot of stuff that still has to be done, John, in the analog world that you can be very successful at. I agree 100%. I was up in New Hampshire not that long ago talking to a group of younger people talking about college debt. I think one person might have had six figure debt, and he was a chef in a restaurant. And there was someone else who had tens of thousands of dollars of debt, and she was a nurse. And what I found anecdotally, a lot of the folks struggling with that kind of debt start going to a traditional college, which perhaps they uh, would never be successful at. And it's not what they want to do. It's not what they're passionate about. And they dig themselves such a significant hole. And then they find being an electrician is something that fulfills them and they're good at, or being a chef or working in welding or some other sort of trade. So I do think as this generation becomes of age and more of us kind of understand where they're coming from, that we can assign more value or the meritocracy can assign more value to those important jobs because that's how we get stronger as communities and ultimately, I think, as a nation. I think that's right. I think the community piece of this is lost physically, whether or not it's your street, your neighborhood, your town, whatever, but also the social media piece of this that you talk about, the online piece of this, should build communities, but that doesn't necessarily mean those are any more healthy. Now, in the focus groups you've doing and the research you're doing, is this generation missing that more? I mean, we just took it for granted, right? Like there wasn't anything else to do, right? Like there wasn't an internet. So like you came home when the sun went down. In fact, your parents said, don't come home until the sun goes down. Everything was predicated on being with your group of friends, you know, or whatever it was because there was television, but that was it. Like there wasn't anything else. Like you couldn't sit on your phone and communicate with the world. It was an impossibility. I think that the older Gen Zers, I call them Zoomers, they at least remember the experience and they tell me they wish they could go back six, seven years to when they were 10, 11 years old, when they didn't have a smartphone and they could ride their bike you know, to their friends and to hang out and do whatever they were going to do. They at least have those kinds of experiences and they're still kind of somewhat nostalgic for that. I'm not sure that the other group even will know what that's like, especially the group coming of age today. So- that's certainly kind of a concern. We're dealing with a generation, read where half of them, 52%, we're dealing with a generation of 70 million people. Half of them have told me in multiple surveys that several times over the last two weeks, more than half the days, they indicate that they've had feelings of hopelessness, depression. About that many say similar things around anxiety. And half that number, 25%, indicate that it's so bad that they've considered self-harm or suicide. So Think about that. 6% of this generation have those thoughts every single day. So, you know, that's the epidemic 
that is happening. And this is heightened, but certainly not new. It's been going on well before COVID. But that's like 3 million people every single day. That's not a rounding error. Like that's a statistically significant number of Americans and American youth. Yes. And we see the effects of that. In chapter one, it's called United by Fear. It talks a lot about the struggles of this generation. And it's when older Zoomers came of age, you know, five, six years ago, that we started seeing the spike in deaths by suicide. It had been relatively flat, you know, from 2000 to 2009, 2010. And these spikes have occurred in every one of the states across the country, every single one, where there's been a large enough population, it was statistically significant, and there's four or five states that are small that don't have that size of a population. But yeah, with New Hampshire, you know, just an hour north of me where I am now, being one of the states with the greatest challenge. So let's talk about the book specifically. So what's the story you're trying to tell? If someone wants to pick this up, and I highly recommend that you do, do you tell it through the eyes of specific kids you've spoken to? What are you trying to impart to, I assume, someone older than Gen Z, you know, when they put it down again? What I'm trying to tell is that everything we thought we knew about Gen Z is actually wrong. Very, very wrong. We hear in the media the stereotypes, the supercilious, sanctimonious snowflakes is what our sitting attorney general once said. As I said, I recognize that every generation has their struggles. I don't think any generation has had more struggles more quickly before the age of 25 than this generation. But rather than turning away, taking flight, ignoring it, they've actually done the opposite. And they've actually grown up as, I think, angrier, more determined, and more motivated to change their own lives and also their country. And what is unique about this generation is they're doing this not just for themselves, right? The title of the book is called Fight. And when people ask me what they're fighting for, you know, the experiences I have around the country is they tell me they're, yeah, they're fighting kind of for themselves, but they're also fighting for other people of any age who have to take one or two side hustles, right, to stay in your house. They're fighting for people who feel under attack in their own country based upon where they came from or where they're going or their color of skin or their religion, right? They're fighting for their kids and their grandkids, you know, for a cleaner planet. That's the story. And whether you're the president of the United States, the president of a small business or a major corporation, this is their future. And for you to engage with them in any significant way, they need to like you. And the purpose of this book is to help folks understand their childhood, how they were raised, what these pressures were, and how they're internalizing these pressures and ultimately changing America. So that's kind of why I wrote it. The interesting thing is, you know, it's been out now for a couple of weeks or so. It's been great to get notes, you know, from people our age, you know, who said, you know, I thought my family was different, but this is something that resonates with us and let me know how I can help other families. But also, I'm hopeful that this could also empower younger people to do more. They're in the struggle every single day. They're exhausted, is what they tell me. I have more optimism than they do. So I'm also hopeful that this book can be a platform for them to see the difference they've already made and the future that they could create for themselves and for others if they stick with it. So of the 70 million, to your point about fighting and you know fighting for their friends, their family, others, about how many of them are of voting age right now? I mean, I'm looking at basically a half of the 18 to 29-year-old cohort 
you know, would be this. So, you know, 18 to 25, 26, 27 year olds. So listen, enough of them with their, you know, slightly older cousins, millennials to have, I think, elected Joe Biden and two Democrat senators from Georgia. Enough of those. I mean, as someone who's done more campaigns than I care to think about, we always hear, you know, how are you going to turn the young vote out? How are you going to turn the young vote out? It's all about the youth. It's all about the youth. And John, I will admit my cynicism. Some of it backed up by election results that say my biggest concern with young people, having previously been one, is like there's always something else to do on election day. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's a beautiful day. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'm hungover. I'm high. Like I got class, whatever it is, there's always an excuse. But how do you take that kind of cohort that is 100% plugged in nearly all the time, but is also probably a heck of a lot harder to convince that like you have either A, their best interests at heart, or B, the things you're saying you actually believe? Like, how do you motivate them? And maybe this is a problem of young voters, you know, in all time. The single most important driver or predictor of whether or not they vote is a series of questions that we wrote prior to 9-11 around, you know, just the efficacy of the political process and whether voting could make a tangible impact or the differences between the parties. Does it really matter? Because the genesis of the Harvard Institute of Politics poll that we started back in 2000 was really to try to understand this disconnect between community service, of which a large majority of college students would participate in on a regular basis and voting, which only a third of young people voted in the 96 election between Clinton and Dole. Harder to volunteer, right? Takes more time, takes more effort, doing more than one day a year. But many more were doing that than voting because they didn't see the difference between the parties or, you know, voting for a particular candidate and his or her vision could take literally a generation for that vision to be realized. 9-11 changed that overnight, right? We saw 12, 15-point shifts in questions related to the tangible nature. So I've always thought about younger people around two sets of barriers. So you have these like mechanical barriers. If you're on a college campus back in those days, understanding the absentee procedure based upon which you came from, that was a mechanical barrier. But does it matter, right? Well, how will it change the issues I care about was this attitudinal barrier that was kind of softened, you know, after 9-11 and the war. And obviously, Obama did a really great job in 2007 and 2008 trying to dismantle both of those sets of barriers. But then they emerged, right, with additional gridlock after his election. Younger people got disenchanted, turnout, participation went down. And then we saw 2016, 2017. It wasn't until a few months of Donald Trump where younger people understood again, politics does matter. We can literally see the difference of what America might look like with Steve Bannon on the National Security Council, being pulled out of Paris, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Plenty of examples. And that began to open up their minds to say, okay, I think politics is relevant now. Now we need to take a look and find ways to engage. So that's always the first part. But unlike other segments of the population, to really kind of connect with a younger person, not just in politics, perhaps, but you know, in any other venture, I said they need to like you, but they need to have faith in the system. So you need to do a couple things, right? One is, again, you need to build up faith into the system, which is the system can work to create some sort of change. And then you need to create a relationship with the individual as well, right? It's almost like a bank shot. And too many Democrats, in my opinion, take them for granted. They don't do the work on the first part, only try to message them on the back end, and it doesn't often work. Too many Republicans 
don't believe they'll vote or that they're lost to Democrats and don't compete to the degree to which they could or they should. I do think that we're, you know, on the front edge of reimagining how we communicate with each other, especially in this era where younger voters and older voters want to have a check-in. They want to have a check-in with Washington. They want to have a check-in with Congress, with the president. They know most folks don't want to follow on a day-to-day basis, but they want to have the confidence that they can kind of check in on the progress that's being made or not being made, where they are on the four-year plan, et cetera. They want to know that that's there. At the same time, they're actively avoiding political news, unfollowing people, you know, less likely to check most news and political news websites and obviously kind of cable TV. That's one issue that needs to be dealt with. We all need to kind of rethink. And I think, frankly, that's what I have been so impressed with, honestly, with the Lincoln Project over the last several months is the flexibility and the opportunity that Lincoln Project is providing across multiple formats, you know, to engage in politics in bite-sized pieces. I mean, look, I know that a lot of folks in politics still want to believe that a thousand gross rating points of broadcast television in Grand Rapids is the best way to reach people, but I'm just not sure it is. You mentioned at the top that this is the most diverse generation that we've seen. And that's not surprising given all of the other demographic pieces. Is there a consistent diversity of ideological thought too? I mean, I know that in today's politics, John, traditional liberal versus conservative is sort of scrambled, but are they open-minded? Do they tend to be more progressive? Where do they sort of fall on the spectrum such as it is? It's a great question. And we have a series of 15 or so questions I ask every single spring been doing it for 21 years, typology-related questions. And every single one of those questions, every single year, has ticked further leftward, you know, in terms of younger people becoming a little bit more open every single year to what I would call a kind of a progressive agenda on issues from climate to race to healthcare, et cetera. Younger Americans have been tilting leftward now for two generations. The biggest spike on issues over the last 20 years were around the time of Donald Trump. For example, far more young people support free trade than before his presidency. Far more young people support legal immigration than before his presidency. Far more people support protecting the climate, even the expense of business, than before his presidency. So yes, it is the most progressive and slightly more progressive than the millennials. Having said that, they are still incredibly open-minded in terms of the best way to solve these challenges or to deal with these problems. For example, in a series of questions that we asked and we released at Harvard over the last year of young people, we found that a plurality to a majority across every important subgroup prefers a Washington, D.C. that negotiates compromises and meets somewhere in the middle, even at the expense of some of their own things that they care most about. And that, by the way, that perspective is something that's not fully appreciated, I think, by the like, traditional establishments who thinks that this is a transactional generation. You need to go all the way on student loans. You need to go all the way on cannabis or whatever these issues are, rather than having a conversation that's based upon values and respect and trust and a longer term vision. And I did take a leave from Harvard for the first time in 21 years to re-engage in politics for the first time, really, since the 90s, on behalf of the Biden campaign. 
But I was always confident when very few young people were excited, you know, or even voted for then Vice President Biden in some of those early states. I remained optimistic that they would come around and become an integral part of that campaign because I believed that their values, the things I talked about, their concerns for others, their empathy, you know, wanting solutions for healthcare and economy that works for everybody, climate, et cetera, were very much the same values and principles that Vice President Biden had been campaigning on, you know, over the course of his lifetime, and that there was a communication issue that needed to be squared. And once that was squared, that and talking about America with Donald Trump having a second term versus America with President Biden would be two very, very different places. So yeah, you give them all the credit for, you know, putting whatever biases they might have had behind them to listen and to engage. And look, that's what we're saying again as a bunch of I think we're all now former Republicans. And you know, to current Republicans, we're apostates, right? I mean we're traitors. But that's what we say. Like, we'll work with anybody in the pro democracy movement. We all care about the things we care about. But we understand, John, too, that none of this happens without a small d democratic system, small r Republican form of government that leads to the ability of individual freedom, economic freedom, all the other things. Do these Americans, these younger Americans, are the vast majority of them believers in the democratic system, one, and two, if not, is there a significant portion of them who don't believe it that concerns you? Far more people describe our democracy today as failed than healthy. We do see differences on the question of the importance of democracy. Overwhelmingly, this generation supports it. But you know what? Those folks who have less of an education, where there are what I would call kind of civic deserts, they're less likely to appreciate the importance of democracy. And it's not a large number, but certainly that is a group of Americans we should all be concerned about. There are more who are older than younger, but you can clearly see the lack of civics education, the lack of perspective, lack of history, the lack of education leading folks to not believe that democracy is our best path forward. Is there a Venn diagram of a civics desert and an economic desert? I'm sure that there is. Absolutely. And another one of the stressors of younger people is those folks who leave those small places. And I'm not disparaging any of them. I'm talking about, again, the lack of conversation, the lack of civics, the lack of kind of connection to other communities across the country. When some folks stay there and other folks go to their state university for college, it creates real angst because the Facebook feed of the young person from that place who's in college and they've got new friends and thinking about the world in different ways, that creates stress because the folks who don't leave those places are often the ones who are challenging those assumptions with information that is coming more likely from like Chinese state media or Russian propagandists rather than trusted members of society. And that creates identity crises and friendship become an issue and just more stress. But I saw a lot of that in 2020 when I was conducting research for the campaign. So how do they see the country? How do they see the United States? Do they see it as a place that has the ability to do good and bend the arc of history towards justice, or do they believe that the country's too far gone? I don't think they believe it's too far gone. When I ask that question, the words I hear are terrifying. They describe America as fake, as divided, off the rails, dystopic. You know, it's pretty dark. They 
are less likely to see America as that shining city on the hill to believe in American exceptionalism. They think that other nations can be or are as great as we are. Again, this is a generation that has not been provided the opportunity to experience what American greatness feels like when we all come together. Like the day after the tragedy of Challenger or after 9-11. So the oldest members, if I ask them the time when they felt most proud to be American or their first political memory, the older ones, you know, will have a memory of the 08 election, whether that was the debate in the household between the mom and their dad, McCain and Obama voters, you know, that kind of exchange. Or they remember, you know, Republicans, independents, Democrats, they all kind of came together, right, to give this first term United States senator an opportunity here. They felt that even in their classrooms. But those who are just a couple of years younger don't even remember kind of that experience. And it's been mostly negative. It's one of the toughest questions to get a, a listen answer to. What's the proudest moment you remember being an American? It's a tough question. John, think about this. This summer will be seven years since Donald Trump descended the escalator at Trump Tower, which means that if you're 18 now, you're 19 now, you were 12. So your sort of intellectual awakening, like that's the beginning of it. I mean, think about that. Exactly. So anyone who followed no drama Obama, I think was going to have a transformational impact on this generation, right? Whether that was going to be our first female president or Donald Trump, you know, transformational leaders have that effect. And what's ironic about this generation is that it's a combination, I think, of two elderly people, Sanders and Trump, right? Sanders and Trump were the combination of a handful of teenagers that have and will continue to shape this generation. It's Trump, it's Sanders. Sanders or Biden? Well, I think first Sanders, in terms of the value set that was developed during and post-Occupy around questioning capitalism and economic inequality, those sorts of things. I remember listening to a Bernie Sanders speech, listening to it on the radio in, I guess it would have been 2015, early 2016, maybe before the nominations were done. And if you took those words and you put them in front of someone and said, did Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump say this? It would have been hard to distinguish between them. Well, that's populism, right? If you go so far around, it kind of meets the other side and the Sanders uh, Trump people have some things in common, right? Which is the institutions are failing and, you know, an average person doesn't have a fair shake. That's where, obviously, I think the similarities end. But there were certainly kind of strains of that, that, you know, interested younger people who are always questioning and always curious about things. Listen, as often as we can, for many, many years, I bring a couple of my students to Washington, D.C. More times than not, they've never been there before. And if we're lucky, we'll have an audience at the White House, we'll go to the RNC, the DNC, anyone who will take us, right? Anyone who will take us. And we spent 90 minutes in the White House during the first 100 days of Donald Trump's presidency. And we tested in our survey different elements of his policy to see how much support they'd be and how much impact they might have for the generation, from sales, for families, et cetera. And there were opportunities for Donald Trump to make inroads with this generation, to connect with them. But the message that we got in our research and the message that our students and myself offered to Kellyanne Conway, who met with us, Bill Stepien, and a couple of others, was that more than anything, younger people just want 
no more division. They want to be united, right? They want to be united to solve these kinds of problems. And you know what? You could have an argument, debate about merit-based immigration. Younger people are happy to have that debate. But it was the vision that turned so many people off in those early days. And then obviously we know what's happened since. Well, listen, on that note, John, I want to thank you again for joining me today. And everybody out there, please go pick up the book, Fight How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. John, before we let you go, where can we find you on social media and where can we find your other work? So you can find me on Twitter at Delavolpe, probably the best place. I have Instagram at Delavolpe as well. All of the Harvard work is available at the Harvard IOP website. So you can see all of our charts and graphs and cross tabs and questionnaires for over two decades. And a lot of the other work I produce outside of Harvard is available on my website, socialsphere.com. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. John, thanks again for joining me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.